0: I remember back in 2014, um, you know you have hard weeks or hard months or hard seasons. Um, I think if I was to look over the course of my 40 plus years of being on this earth, I would have to say the first half of 2014 was probably the worst, um, probably the most difficult that I, we, my wife and I, my family have been through. It began at the start of the year. It began in January. We we planted a church, the church that we're currently in. um, We were part of that church plant, and uh, it was you know it was an exciting time. Church plants, and as as with all church plants, they they come with their struggles. Um, Our our one was particularly interesting one. We didn't have a a building to go to. We didn't have our own place to uh, to meet in, so we were looking at rented places. Um, And and for the first couple of months, it was just a nightmare. Um, We were trying to. Rent that we were renting the um, or using one of the rooms in the local bowling club, and every single week there was a problem. It it was the the, you know the room wasn't available, or the you know we couldn't. There was no one there to open up, or it was just every single week there was something that was uh, we had to just overcome an issue just to get into the room. Um, It was just this continual. Stress and it almost became a running joke of um, you know, what do you think is going to happen this week? Almost like just taking bets of who's got the craziest guess of what could possibly go wrong this week. And um, you know, usually the stupidest guess was probably the closest to to what actually happened. And so that was just it was just one of those stressful things, you know. We didn't have Resources, you know, we were. It was one of those cases where we were sort of taking everything and setting everything up ourselves, and it was all the work that was, you know, that goes along with just having a normal, um, rented space, plus all of these other things that were going along with that. So it was just one of those, if that was it, probably maybe it wouldn't have been so bad, it would have just been a a difficult circumstance just with the church. But there were all these other things that were happening to us, to my wife and I, especially during that time um it was about february um that we so we had at the time um we just had the one uh, our eldest now but we only had the one child at the time and um we would my wife was pregnant with with what was going to be our second child and so we'd had trouble with having children had always been quite difficult for us and so the first one was something think of a miracle so to have two was like oh wow you know we might actually be you know getting good at this or how or whatever um so we, she was pregnant. It um, was about, yeah, probably about two, three months into it. And we, we had a miscarriage. And we'd had miscarriages before, but this was a particularly stressful one. I mean, they're all bad, but this one, it was just a particularly painful one. It was, uh, you know, we thought we'd overcome all of the issues of the first child and now the second one. And it's like, we've just lost that one. And it was just like, oh, here we go again. Like we want to have a family, but how is, how hard is this going to be? Is so all of those questions have been asked, and then just the loss, the actual loss of a child, and um, you know, just the the strain on top of the strain of of all of that. It was just it it, it was just compounding on um, on that particular moment in time that we were going through. At the same time. Um, my mum, so Mama had a whole lot of various issues, but um, it was becoming clear that she was uh, she was suffering from dementia. There was early signs of dementia coming on. Now she's quite young. She was at the time only sixty two, sixty three. Um, and the reason for the dementia, the cause of the dementia, was alcohol. She was an alcoholic and uh, and that had just done its damage in, in the most severe way. And so it was becoming very clear to us that mum, Who was living by herself was increasingly incapable of of doing that. She was looking after our daughter a day a week, and we dropped my wife would drop the daughter off, and it was just obvious that um, mum wasn't doing well. She she wasn't quite sure where she was some of the time or what she was doing. You know, we found out later on she'd signed up for five different to type five different phone companies, five different phone plans because she didn't even remember what she'd done last time. It was I – mean, if you've been through these circumstances, you're not know talking about it. Was It was obvious that her living by herself was becoming increasingly problematic uh, and so we were just at the starting point of that journey of – well, we need to probably have her come and live with us. Um, she was obviously way too young. I mean, she was still working age. So, you know, she wasn't going to get into a retirement home or into any sort of care. Uh, she was going to have to come and live with us. And at the time we thought she was well enough to, you know, if, if we were with her at the very least and she had her own place, her own little flat, um, that might be enough just to, um, you know, just for her to be able to look after herself with a little bit of oversight from us. Um, so we started, started that going down that journey of, okay, well, you know, we've just bought this house. We love the house that we're in, but this house isn't going to be able to accommodate her. We want to raise it. We want to, you know, grow a family. Um, we're going to need a bigger house, but we're also going to need a place with a flat and, you know, where we are, where the area that we live in, there's not that many houses to begin with. Um, certainly within the very limited price range that we had, let alone a place that had. A, a granny flat in fact there was literally two uh, that were on the market at the time and so and neither of them were really suitable for what we needed but it was like we're going to have to make this work so we'd sort of started down that journey and we knew that we were that was we were in that one for the long haul no one else in the family could look after us so it was that was all happening around February and March at the same time on top of you know all of these other things that we were we were sort of going through. But then in June, um, in addition to all of these things, June really, um, that was the breaker. So I got a call from my sister. It was a Sunday just after church. And uh, I still remember sitting there with my lunch. And I got a call from my sister. She's absolutely just in tears. And she says, oh, dad's just been killed. And my dad was a, was a pilot, um, a very experienced pilot, very good pilot, probably one of the best in the country. But um, he, he and a friend were flying in this little home-built plane, and it was, you know, no fault of their own. There was a, a fault with the aeroplane and uh, it crashed. Um, there was nothing they could do about it. It was a, a design fault. And so they were flying along over the, just over the coast and the next thing they were in a dive and the plane just went straight into the ocean. Um, Dad's body was thrown out. The other guy that was with him was taken down in the plane to the, to the bottom. Um, it took him and took about a week Uh, for for divers to actually find the plane. Dad's body was found straight away, but that was, well, I obviously didn't describe what it's like when you've just been thrown out of a crashed aeroplane. So dad was obviously dead. And so that was like a, wow, that was a, that was a real, yeah. I mean, you could imagine it was just a really, really kick in the guts on top of all of these things that are going on. It was like, oh, that's, that's gotta be it surely. Um, And so we, um, you know, we were sort of, sort of going through the journey then of, um, you know, trying to find the other guy's body and, and trying to get a funeral. It was a couple of weeks before we could we could do a funeral. Couldn't actually, you know, bury him properly. He had to cremate him at but all. But, um, so going through that whole process of, of burying dad. Now, dad, dad was pretty young still in his 60s, you know, still a plenty of life ahead of him. So it was very unexpected as well, um, that particular death. But it was right in the midst of that. Um, I remember I was just I was lying there and it was just a yeah just trying to process what this year had been and and Dad's death, and then my wife comes in and she says, "Oh, you know, you're not going to want to hear this, but I'm I'm pregnant." And I I remember just you normally you'd be of course you'd be happy in those circumstances, but I just I I could I could barely lift myself to apathy. Um, That was about the best that I could get to. It was like I'm. I'm sure I'm going to be happy about this soon, but I'm, I just, I, I can't, it's just, it just, I couldn't get there. Um, you know, so what should have been this incredibly happy moment was just, was just nothing. Well, anyway, you kind of think at that stage, surely, surely this is, this is it. This has got to be, um, the, the end of it. I remember I came home from dad's funeral. We'd had it down the coast and we came home and I turned on the TV and the news must've been on. And there was a report, about a body that had been found down at a park down in in the city and um, this body that had been found had been stuffed in a suitcase and the suitcase had been set alight and I won't go into the details of it, but they, they initially couldn't even recognize if it was a male or a female. They just had absolutely no idea um, what, what was even going on. And you sort of think, oh, man, that poor family, like, oh, it's just – that's that's terrible you know you just you don't you don't sort of connect anything but it's just what a what a shocking situation I, at the, at the time I certainly felt some empathy it's like I, I I get death like we're going through it right now well anyway um, it was a few days later it was actually it was uh, yeah it was over the weekend just after the weekend of my dad's funeral um, it was the Monday or the Tuesday and I was I was about ready to go back to work and I get a call from my cousin and she said oh that body they found yeah, that was, that, was you, that was our cousin. And it was like this, as it turned out, it was my 18-year-old cousin um, who'd run afoul of some, some drug dealers and, again, won't go into the details, but they'd kidnapped him and they, they tortured him and eventually murdered him. And in an attempt to try to dispose of the body, had, had stuffed it in a suitcase and, and set it alight. And so it's like, all right, well, we're doing another funeral. Um, so I, I went and saw his father, my, my first cousin, but he went and saw his dad and he was in hospital. He'd, he'd, he'd had some – he'd lost it basically when he found out that his son had been killed. And anyway, so I went and visited him in, him in hospital. And, um, you know, it was just I, – I, I didn't ever know if I was feeling emotion at that point. It was just – there was nothing really going on. And he turned to me and said, oh, could you do the funeral? i'd never done a funeral before i'd done weddings um weddings are nice because at least everybody goes home at the end of it but i'd certainly never done a funeral i had no idea how to do it i mean i would just organized dad's funeral I'd, I'd obviously spoken at dad's funeral as well um so organizing a funeral is one thing but to to do it as well and i i mean i just instinctively said yes of, of course i will and i'm just, you know what can I do to help the family? Of course, I'm going to do this funeral, and as it turned out, I'd had a whole lot of preparation from organising Dad's funeral, so I kind of knew what to do with it. Um, but it was just this anyway. So the whole sort of experience of of, of having to do that particular funeral now what was interesting was that both uh deaths were were national news um dad's death was national news because i mean a plane had crashed and a body was missing and dad was quite well known in the aviation community so the funeral itself i mean a couple several hundred people turned up it was a massive event the place was you know just standing room only in this in this particular place and so that had been a, a had added to the process you know having reporters literally chasing us in cars trying to get interviews from us from the kids to find out you know can you give us a scoop on your old man who's just had this tragic accident well then my cousin's funeral was national news as well of course because I mean it was just the most horrific murder that people had ever really seen it was um, you know it was a missing body and then it was just this murder and all the rest of it. And so that had become national news. And so that funeral too, hundreds of people had turned up to this. The media had turned up to it. I mean, I was, I was in, the, in the paper the day after the funeral being quoted of, of what I was saying in, at this particular funeral. And so that, that had been sort of four weeks because, again, that was the process of identifying the body and it was a couple of weeks before we could bury him. So that was the whole, pretty much the whole month of June. We, it was just death and funeral, death and funeral, and right in the middle of that finding out we're going to have a second child. And so we, we, we're at the middle of the year now and everything, it was just, I mean, the last thing I'd ever said to dad was, hey, we're just about to buy a house. So we're looking, we, we, in fact, we'd actually just bought the house. It'd only been a few months, we'd bought the house. And so the last thing I was saying to dad, cause they'd separated and anyway, telling him all about that. And, um, well, anyway, we get to the, to the second funeral and, um, I remember I walked out, they, they carried the casket out. I, I led sort of led the procession out of, um, out of the funeral parlor. And I remember sitting down and it was like all of the six months of emotion just hit me like a wave. It was just, I, I can't even describe it, but everything came out. It was, I couldn't even pinpoint one thing that I was, that I was crying about, but every bit of it came out. And I'll never forget my, my one of my cousins came and she sat next to me and I didn't even really know she was a Christian honestly I mean she's um, you know what, that's another story but I, I, I couldn't I wasn't looking I was just sort of curled over in a ball and she said she sat next to me and she put her arm around me and she just started praying and it was the most incredible thing I don't even, I don't remember what she said I don't remember what she was praying but what she was doing I didn't even she wasn't even didn't even know she was doing this, but she was bringing, just bringing God into the circumstance. Uh, I I, don't even know, again, what what was even really going on, but she just sat there and brought God into that moment, just into all of the pain and all of the anguish and everything that was going on. She just brought him into it. And it's a moment I'll never forget for all of the obvious reasons, but as I re- reflected on it, what she did, what I saw in that moment, what I experienced in that moment, God being brought into it, as I think about it theologically, as I reflect on it sort of more philosophically, it kind of became clear to me that this is what Christianity is. It's God stepping into the circumstances of our pain. Because we live in a world where pain is inevitable. It's You can't. You can't live in this world and not experience pain and suffering at some stage. It is absolutely the one inevitability apart from death is that we're going to go through hard times. And what the world has been trying to do, what humanity has been trying to do since the beginning of time is to try to mitigate the pain. We are constantly trying to find ways to avoid the suffering. And so it's always us trying to escape from it. And all of the different solutions, all of them are, are just try, ways to try to get away from it. And yet God's solution demonstrated as, uh, on the crosses we're going to see is to come and step into the midst of it. Now, again, as we're going to see in this episode, this is, this is historically unprecedented. This is no one had done that before. And yet when God comes, the first thing he does is to come and step into the pain. And so when we think about suffering, you know, we in church it's so often the case that we we try to avoid it. We don't want to talk about it. We we want to pretend it's not there or say that you know Christians with faith should never go through hard times. And yet the core of the Christian message is a God who steps into the pain and says, "No, no, no, we're going to walk through this. We're not going to escape it. We're not going to avoid it. We're going to get through it." That is the unique thing about this Christian message. And so I want to unpack that this week and next week. I want to look at, at, at what does the New Testament really say about suffering? What was the context of the first century and, and how that all sort of fits together and and, and what Jesus' message was, what Jesus' actions were um, in that context and and what were the alternatives? What was Jesus coming as an alternative to? Well, anyway, that's what we're going to look at Um been a long introduction, but that's what we're going to sort of sort of look at now and, and next week uh, in these particular episodes. So really, the whole story then of of humanity and, and all of our developments. If you think about every development, every achievement that humans have made, they've always had in common the desire to mitigate suffering, to mitigate pain, to mitigate struggle. I mean, it, it goes right right back to the garden you know, when. Adam and Eve sinned, you know, the, the the God made clothes for them to cover their their shame, to cover their suffering. It was there was it was always an attempt to make life easier, to make life more comfortable. And so every technological development has always been to help us live longer, to help us live healthier lives, more prosperous lives, to to have less problems, to have less suffering to have to go through and that's always been our story it's always this striving always this determination to um to make everything just that little bit easier for us and and we really live sort of at the high point of that certainly in the trajectory of human history we live at a time where we're living longer than we've humans have ever lived before we don't think about disease really we just don't th- the diseases that were standard 100 years ago that really were the primary killers of all humans we just don't think about those things anymore we just don't think about hunger certainly in our part of the world in the west we don't think about hunger anymore we don't think about poverty anymore because we just we, we have so much because we've created an economy we've created structures that just alleviate all of those struggles so that's always been our story. There's always been the attempt to um, to overcome physical um, struggles, but the struggle and, and suffering is not just physical. It's also mental. It's also emotional. There's there's also just the pain of being human the the emotional and the, and the mental pain um that we go through at times as well of grief and of loss and of uh of shame and 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 just uh failure and and these different things and so how do we overcome that or, or what how have we attempted to overcome that and and more importantly when we look at the first century context what were the what were the structures or, or who were the ones that were trying to find ways to overcome those sufferings as well? Well, when we look at the first century, what we realize is the people who were doing that, who were attempting to um, help humanity overcome those difficulties were the philosophers. Uh, one of the more common um, characters, that you find in the first century are, are philosophers. We, we talked a little bit about this last week with Paul as a teacher. Uh, Paul was a teacher, and um, his category, his, the, the class of people, or the occupation that he was part of, was a teacher. But the teachers themselves were philosophers. Now, the word we think about philosophers, we think about um, you know, stuffy professors in universities that talk about high, lofty ideas that nobody can understand. That's that's not how philosophy was ever understood. Well, or that's not really what philosophy was about. The word philosophy—it's two Greek words: philos, love; sophia, wisdom. The love of wisdom, or, or to be a friend of wisdom. And so, the philosopher was the lover of wisdom. So, the idea of philosophy is to have knowledge, to know the truth about the world and about life but also have the wisdom to be able to know how to live properly and that's really the key difference in greek thinking it's not about knowledge it's not about gnosis just knowing something isn't enough it's it's not enough to know truth but wisdom is the ability to live according to that truth, to know the right things to do in circumstances or knowing the right way to interpret your circumstances so that you can better understand them and, and ideally so that you can better respond to them. So this is what philosophers strive towards. They're, they're trying to live um, the right life, a good life, the happy life, a life that is lived in accordance with truth, with, with reason, with, with wisdom. So when we look at Paul, if you, to put Paul back into his first century context, if you were to say, grab a stranger and point to Paul, and you know Paul's in the middle of teaching or, or whatever he's doing, and you were to say to them, what is that over there? How would you categorize that person? They would say, well, obviously, he's a philosopher. He's doing the work of philosophy. He's doing the work of trying to understand wisdom and reason and to find ways to live according to that. That's clearly what he is. And, in fact, we see a really clear example of this in Acts 17. So Paul's in Athens, which is really the the um, birthplace of philosophy. I mean, going back to Socrates, um, Socrates and then Plato and Aristotle. I mean, all of those guys lived and taught and came out of, of Athens. So Athens is, is the, the heart, it's, it's the origin, it's the birthplace of Greek philosophy. So when Paul's in Athens, it makes sense that when he's walking around and preaching and doing his thing, it's going to be philosophers who recognize what he is. You know, it's not the priests, it's not the, the temple keepers who saw an affiliation in Paul, it was the philosophers. And so we see this here. It says, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. Uh, a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Now, that story, they, it actually specifies two particular schools of philosophy, or two types of philosophers Um, that Paul was debating with. Number one was the Epicureans, and the other group was the Stoics. Now, we'll look at those two particular schools in a moment and why those two were sort of chosen in this story. But the broader point is that when Paul was in Athens, it was philosophers who recognized what he was doing, and they, they heard the message of Paul's preaching, and it resonated with them. It sounded similar to the sorts of things that they spoke about. So the idea, I mean, what a philosopher ultimately was, was a teacher. But they weren't just a teacher of knowledge. What they were or how they understood their role was that they were guides. They were the leaders of humanity. Again, it's not enough in the Greek understanding just to know something. If you don't live it out, if it doesn't transform you, if it's not converted into wisdom and into right living, then you don't really know it. Knowledge has to be outworked. And so that's the goal of the philosopher. They they didn't just know everything, but they were able to live the most proper life. And that was always what they were striving to do. But more than that, they saw themselves as exemplars for everybody else. And if you wanted to listen to a philosopher, what you're going to get from them is how to live a good life, how to live the proper life, not necessarily um, a life without struggle, but to live a life that is the most... Uh, appropriate, a life lived in accordance with truth, with reason, with, with wisdom. So they were, uh, what they sort of understood themselves to be then were, were sort of healers of humanity. See, when they looked at humans and when they looked at human societies, but this goes really, particularly goes back to Socrates, what they saw was that humans are suffering and in a lot of cases they're suffering unnecessarily. Uh, they're, they're suffering because they are subject to fear. Fear of things that they shouldn't be afraid of. Fear that is, in a lot of cases, irrational. Um, people were suffering because they are struggling with or, or they're, they're worried about being shamed. In an honor-shame society, you strive after honor and the greatest thing um, that you want to avoid is shame. And so you do everything you can to avoid to avoid being shamed or they would look at people who were s- suffering because they were controlled by their bodily desires. They weren't being controlled by reason. They were being controlled by their sexual urges or by their their stomachs or, uh, or just by their general um, f- base desires they that was a, that's a type of suffering that's a type of struggle that the philosophers were trying to liberate people from they wanted to free them from this life lived according to worldly pleasures and worldly desires and live a higher life a life lived in accordance with truth and with reason and with what is the most proper and ideal way to be human And so to do that, you need to first of of all understand what that is. Uh, You need to understand what it is, what is the goal of humanity? What is uh, our purpose? Who are we? What are we? What is the most appropriate way for us to be human? And then to live that out, to actually uh, enact that in your everyday life. And so philosophy wasn't just you did a three-year degree in philosophy and now you know a few things about philosophical ideas. It was an everyday challenge it was a struggle it was a wrestle with yourself a wrestle with your desires with your fears and all of the things that would otherwise cripple you and it was something that happens over the your entirety of your life every single day you're struggling and working to become better so this is the real sort of key to greek philosophy it's you have the power within you to live the most ideal life you have to first know what that is through study but then through discipline you need to live it out. So in fact, when Paul says to the Corinthians that the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, that the wisdom of the world is foolishness to God, he's not talking about university educations, right? He's not, it's got nothing to do with that. What he's talking about is this Greek idea that says you can do this by yourself. You can perfect yourself by your own effort. And only you can do it. There's no external support. There's no way, there's nothing outside of you that can make you perfect. Only you can do that yourself. And so your goal is to perfect yourself. And when you achieve that perfection, you can save yourself. I am like a God. I am more than a human. I'm more like a God than a human being. So Paul says that is just absolute anathema to God. That is absolute foolishness according to the wisdom of God. And, but to those Greek uh, philosophers and Greek thinkers, the idea that says that um, you, can be, you can only be perfected by a God who became a person and died on a cross, to the Greek, that's foolishness. The Greek word foolish is literally the word moron. It's moronic to a Greek to assume that a God could do that for you. That's just not, that's not reality. You have to do it for yourself. So this is the at the core of what the philosophers are trying to do. And so the goal then, the goal for all of humanity is, is happiness. When you achieve perfection, what you've achieved is happiness. Now, not happiness in the sense of the emotion that we feel when something goes right. You know, we have a great day and we feel happy about it. Or, that's not what it's talking about. The the happiness that, as the Greeks understood it, was the word eudaimonia. So eudaimonia literally, you good, daimonia demon. You've literally got a good demon or a good spirit, not demon possessed. Don't bring your Christian sort of thinking to it, but just you've got a good spirit. You you are living. Um, you you're filled with. Um, the, the sort of the, the fullness of what it means to be human. And so this is the goal. This is the telos for every human being is this happiness. And, and what happiness looks like, how it manifests itself is an inner calm. Whatever your circumstances are, you are stable. You're, you, you, you're secure in yourself. You're not thrown around by your circumstances, by your emotions, by your desires. You're calm, you're controlled, you have a stability about you that is above the circumstances. The circumstances really have no bearing on what you do. What you do is always driven and determined by reason, by understanding, by logic. That's the ideal life. And so if you'll if you live according to reason, then you have no need to fear. I mean I'll, as an example Um, me personally, I hate spiders. I I hate them. I'm just, I see a spider and my stomach just churns. And if I'm bad, my kids are absolutely total arachnophobes. Um, and so spiders are just not my thing. Now there's a particular spider. And if you live, you're listening overseas, you know, we've got this particular spider in Australia called a huntsman. Now huntsman spiders can be really, really big. They're like big, massive, you know, sometimes sort of small dish plate size um, spiders and they look really ugly and scary. They're just horrible looking creatures, but they're totally harmless. You can pick up a huntsman and it's not going to bite you. It's it's simply not going to hurt you. They're a perfectly perfectly placid um, creature um, to have around. There's no threat from them. But for me, I'm scared of them. I hate them. I don't want to go near them because I have this irrational fear. Now, if I lived according to perfect reason, I would realize that this spider is totally harmless, that if I pick it up, it's not going to do anything to me. And so that's truth. That's reality. But my irrationality uh, tells me, no, don't go near that thing because it's going to kill you. That's what the philosophers are trying to move you away from. They would say, no, you're foolish if if you live according to that fear. Reason says to you, the spider's harmless, go and pick it up. It, it it's not going to do anything to you that's how we're supposed to live now that takes work that takes discipline and that's the goal of philosophy that's that's what the philosophical teachers are, are trying to bring out of your out of their students to help move them to a place where they're they're free from disturbance they're, they're not being controlled by their emotions or by their desires and more than that when external circumstances come along They're not bothered by it. They're not impacted by it. The circumstances will happen around them, but it doesn't change our outlook. It doesn't change what we do. We're not overwhelmed by external circumstances that are actually outside our control. And again, that takes discipline. That's what the goal of philosophy is. And in all of this, its goal is to pursue happiness as opposed to struggle. Or, or not so much struggle. Struggle is a reality, but struggle can be turned to our good to strengthen us. It's to remove from us the suffering. It's to remove from us the anxiety, the fears. It's the, the grief, the emotions that would otherwise overwhelm us. That's the problem. That's what needs to be overcome. And we do that through the practice of philosophy. So why am I saying all of this? Well, because when we – to understand – Jesus, to understand Paul and to understand what this Christian um, community and mission and, and message was, was an alternative to that way of thinking, to that way of it's more than just knowledge, but it's about living properly. It's about living according to our purpose, our created purpose as human beings. So returning to our passage, Paul talks about two particular schools of philosophy, the Epicureans, and the Stoics, and it's interesting that both of those are mentioned because they actually represent two ends of the spectrum of what the various philosophical schools were. Now, there were plenty of other uh, schools. There was the uh, the Cynics, there was the Platonists, there was the Peripatetics. There were other schools of philosophy who were all trying to um, do the same thing. Their goal in all of it was to move themselves and their students to a place where they weren't overwhelmed by all of these external factors, by all of their emotions, to live uh, the most appropriate life. But they had different understandings about what that was, and especially about how to get there. And again, you've got these two ends of the spectrum, the Epicureans and the Stoics, um, that that Paul deals with. And so what we'll do is just quickly look at those two schools and then compare that to how the message of Jesus would have been heard amongst them. So at one end of the spectrum... You had the Epicureans. Now, Epicurean is actually a term that you may have heard. Um, you know, it's, it sort of denotes a type of lifestyle. You live an Epicurean sort of lifestyle. But what it comes from is a particular school named after its founder, Epicurus, whose who sort of basic idea of the way to, um, uh, to, not be, to not suffer is to just simply avoid the things that cause suffering. rather than learn how to deal with it, just get away from it, right? Just go somewhere else. So what are the things that cause us to suffer? Well, fear of the gods in their case or fear of shame, fear of public opinion or suffering from from poverty or from hunger or from pain, Uh, all of these different things. Well, we can learn how to um, go through them or we can just get away from them, Right, I mean, isn't it just easier that if you're going through a difficult circumstance or you're in, a, you're in a group of people that are causing you problems, isn't it easier just to go somewhere else, just to be, be somewhere else? And so this is precisely his method, very practical, let's just get out of here, right? Athens is a busy, bustling city and everyone's worried about what everybody thinks about each other and everyone's stressed and everyone's afraid and everyone's got all these issues going on. Wouldn't it just be easy to get out of the city? And so that's exactly what he did. He took all his students over to his house into his garden and he said, let's just hang out here all day. Let's just have good friendships and have good conversation and eat food and drink wine and let's just relax. It's kind of like the goal of Epicureanism um, was it's kind of like when you know you know when you go on a holiday and you know you've you've been through maybe it's been a stressful year or season, and so you go on this holiday and you just go somewhere completely different to where you live, hours and hours away, maybe even overseas, and you just go and sit on a beach or you go and sit in some lovely mountains and you don't actually do anything. It's not like it's an expensive time away. It's not like you're doing these great activities every day. You just go and read a book or, you know, have a beer, have, drink a glass of wine, just hang out with, with a friend or a partner or something, and there's no agenda, there's no emails, there's no one bothering you, there's no text messages you, maybe even put your phone away for a few days, and you just chill out. You just The problems are always there, but they're somewhere else. You're in a different place. That's Epicureanism. And that's the whole goal, in fact, of Epicureanism. It's the pursuit of pleasure. Uh, The Greek word for pleasure is the word hedonist. It's where we get a word hedonistic from. So if you're a hedonist, you're somebody who just lives for pleasure, just lives for your own personal satisfaction. Now, we've taken that term and we sort of do something different with it. We talk about somebody who is a real, just very gluttonous, somebody who is just living for the extremes of pleasure. That's not what Epicurus was talking about. What he was talking about was the pleasure that comes from not being stressed and the pleasure that comes from just having enough, just having good friendships the, the pleasure of just a, a, a friendly conversation or an uplifting conversation, that, that's the pleasure we're striving for. It's the pleasure that comes with well, yeah, when you're really hungry and you just got that, like a, you feel uncomfortable because you, you, you're hungry, but then you eat and you don't eat too much. You don't stuff yourself. So now you just feel like you're just bloated and feel gross. You've just eaten enough that the hunger has been taken away. And so the satisfaction, the pleasure that comes with no longer feeling that uncomfortable feeling of hunger, but it's not, you don't even feel anymore. You just, it's it's that satisfaction where it's not eating too much, but rather eating so that you don't feel the need to eat. That's what we're aiming for here. So for Epicurus, it's about the pursuit of pleasure, but pleasure in the sense of the absence of pain, the absence of any sort of physical suffering or mental suffering. And so again, the simplest way to do that is just to get away from the stressful situation, to have enough food that you don't feel hungry, to have enough company that you just feel um, uplifted or that you feel um, you don't feel lonely. I mean, you know, the 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 pain that comes with having bad friends or, or having bad company or having no company. Let's alleviate that. Let's have good company. Let's have company that just removes the pain of people that are just using us or people that you know what I mean? So that's what we're going for here. It's the pursuit of pleasure. Now that doesn't take any real mental strain. You don't have to learn Philosophical ideas and truths about logic and and what it means to be human. You don't need to worry about all of that stuff. That just creates more stress. What we just simply need to do is to live in a circumstance where there's no there's no means by which we can we can ever suffer. Now, one of the other um, sort of ways in which they bring comfort is to remove fear. Fear is the great thing that humans always suffer from. And the primary fear that you suffer in the ancient world is the fear of the gods. We've talked about the gods before, but they're very arbitrary. They're very capricious. They can turn on you at any moment and kill you if they want to. So you just don't know what the gods want. And so you're living in constant fear. So the whole idea of sacrificing to gods is to try to alleviate the potential, mitigate the potential suffering they can bring on you. Well, that's one way to deal with the gods, but you're still not sure if you've done enough. You're never sure if the sacrifice is enough to have uh, to have dealt with the gods or kept them at bay. How about this? How about we just deny them, right? Or how about we just pretend they don't exist? In fact, it would make more sense, uh, Epicurus says, um, that they don't exist. Because what, he, what the philosophers had um, sort of come to realize is that all of all physical matter is made up of particles. It's made up of substance. And so when you take into consideration the, this substance, substance can be broken down. So, you know, something can be continually broken down to its smallest component and, you know, right down to dust. But dust itself must be made of something. Everything has to be made of something. But there has to come a point. When you're making something physical, when you're dealing with something physical, there has to come to a point where it can no longer be broken up anymore. It can no longer be divided up anymore. So everything can be broken down to a point, and then it just can't be broken anymore. Now, the Greek word for to divide or to cut is the word tome. So when we talk about cutting or or something that is uncuttable, what we're talking about is atome, something that's uncuttable, an atom. So the world is made up of atoms, and these atoms are eternal. If you can't break it up, then you can't destroy it. It must be eternal. So if the whole world is made of atoms, then that is everything. And if there are gods, they too must be made of atoms, but we can't see them. We don't know where they are. They're a long way from here, so we don't need to worry about them. All we need to worry about is the physical matter, that. We are participating in. And if everything is eternal, then these atoms, when we die, go off into eternity and form something else. But we're not going to know about it because, well, that's it. We die, we go back to atoms, and that's that's it. That's the end of the story. There are there are no gods, there's no eternity. there's no, or there's no life after death because there's there can't be a soul if there was a soul that has to be made of atoms, but that would defeat the whole purpose of being a soul. So therefore, that's it, this life is all we have. It's all made of atoms. And then when we die, it all dissipates. So the point of that being, if there are, if it's all just atoms and there's no gods, then there's nothing to be afraid of. That's it, there's, there's just nothing to be afraid of because there's no gods. So don't stress about it. Don't worry about trying to mold and shape your character through these hard struggles. Just take the atoms that you've got, put them in a situation where they don't go through any suffering, through any pain, at least as much as possible. And that's about the best we can hope for. That's about the best sort of life that we can have, that we can ever really strive for and achieve. So it's about comfort. It's about pleasure. It's about just relax, enjoy life, just in, enjoy the, the comforts of life. And that's our goal. That's, that's what true happiness is all about. Hey, I just wanted to take a moment to say thank you so much for listening. I really hope that you're finding this podcast helpful. Uh, If you are enjoying it, please consider leaving a five-star review that would really help to promote the podcast further. Uh, And you might even enjoy the YouTube channel and other social media that is attached to the New Testament story. You can find the link for that in the show notes. And in that same link, you'll also find uh, a link to um, the chance to support the channel. If you'd like to consider supporting this cha- this channel financially, um, you, can, you can do that through that same link as well. But anyway, back to the show. Now, the second school that Luke mentions there in our story are the Stoics. Now, again, this is a term you'd be familiar with. You talk about a person being Stoic or you know, um, we talk about Stoicism. This idea, it's, um, see what the Stoics recognized as opposed to the Epicureans is that you can't, just escape. That's not real. You, you have to engage with the world. You, you have to live in cities. You have to live uh, amongst people. Things are going to get hard. There is suffering. There is pain. There is torment. That's the reality of life. It's, it's just not about hanging out in someone's garden, drinking wine, eating food, hanging out with your mates. You, you, you've got to do life. So that's our reality. The question is, How do we deal with it? How do we approach or how do we um, uh, navigate our way through the inevitable struggles with... Um, the, that we find in, in this life. And so for them, the goal for humans, the, the purpose of humans is to live the virtuous life. And we've already talked about this, but the goal then of the Stoics was happiness. It was living in accordance with reason, with logic, and living according to nature. What the, the world as we know it, is eternal. Um, it's, it's going in a particular way. There's a certain logic or, or a logos. To the universe. And when we it's we run into trouble when we try to fight against it. When we try to go contrary to what logic says, that's when we run into trouble. So by understanding logically the world and who we are and our place in it, and then living according to that, that's the most virtuous life. That's the, the happiest life. That's the life that is not without pain, but it's the life that is best lived. And so that's their ultimate goal. It's, it's based in knowledge. It's based in, in understanding. But then they also recognize that in our everyday life, we have to deal with stuff. We have to deal with money and fame and, you know, shame and suffering and gods and people and all these things in our life, in our everyday experience, we have to engage with those. And so the question is not how do we escape from them, but the question is how do we best deal with them? How do we best deal with issues like money or food or sex or or these different um, realities that that are a part of us? And so what they developed was this idea of adiaphora, um, this idea of things that are indifferent. And so what they realize is that there's two spectrums of, of good and evil. So the ultimate good, as far as the Stoics are concerned, um, is virtue the sole true good? Are the four cardinal virtues so wisdom, moderation, justice, courage? So wisdom is the means by which we live the most appropriate life. Moderation is the way in which we overcome our base desires. Justice is recognizing that the um, the, the circumstances there are there are certain outcomes that are inevitable in circumstances. That's justice. There that certain actions deserve certain consequences and we have to just come to, we have to come to terms with that. We can't fight against that. Um, courage. Courage is what overcomes fear. It's not the absence of fear, but it's the ability to still act in the face of fear. So these are the four cardinal virtues and they, they are the ultimate good. That's what we always have to be pursuing. And they, they're they never bad. That's what we always have to um, to, to strive for. The Opposite of that, the, the the true evils or the true ills are the opposites. So folly, the opposite to wisdom, intemperance, the opposite to moderation, injustice, and then cowardice. So the it's the possession of the virtues that is the ultimate ideal. That's what we're living for. And in doing that, we are removing from ourselves their opposites. So those are the extremes. And the only things that we can truly say that are good and evil are those two different things. Everything else is indifferent. Everything else is external to us. It's all indifferent. So if we take money as an example, money, as far as the Stoics are concerned, is an indifferent. Money is neither good nor evil. It's only how we use it. Now, amongst all of the, um, the different bits and pieces and stuff, there are some that are better and there are some that or there are some that are preferred, and there are some that are dispreferred. So, for example, life having possessing life is preferred because if you're alive, you can pursue philosophy. If you're dead, you can't do that. Health health is a preferred. If you're healthy, you can pursue philosophy. If you're sick you can't pursue philosophy so you, you, it doesn't mean that you'll never be sick but you would prefer to be healthy healthy is a better um, option but it's still indifferent it's not true good in itself in the same way that illness isn't true evil they are just what they are what they are just one is better than the other in the same way being rich now money and possessions and riches are again neither here nor there but they're an indifferent if you're rich, you don't have to work, you can pursue philosophy. If you're poor, you have to work, you can't pursue philosophy. So, if you got a choice, you prefer to be rich, but it's not a, an ultimate good to be rich in the same way that it's not an evil to be poor. All of it is just whatever is required to pursue the good life, to pursue virtue, that's what we would rather have. But even if we don't have those things, we can still make the best of the circumstances we have. So, that's an attitude and that's how you can approach life. You understand that there's only a few things that are truly good and a few things that are truly evil and everything else that you come across is indifferent, it's just a question of how you use it. So that's one sort of facet then of stoicism. The other facet is this idea of apatheia and this is the, really the goal, it's, it's apathy. It's not being disturbed by your circumstances right? It's the problem is not, um, the stuff it's the passion and the desire for the stuff. That's the problem. It's riches aren't the, uh, an evil. It's the desire to be rich. That is the evil. It's the greed that comes along with being rich. That's the evil. And so the way we overcome that is through apathy. It's not that, um, f- it- uh, scary circumstances are neither here nor there. It's the fear that cripples us that we need to overcome. And again, we overcome that through through apathy. And so, this is a, a a discipline. It's it's something we have to really beat into ourselves and and put ourselves in these hard circumstances so that we can develop the apathy that's required to not be disturbed or or to be um, to be unhealthily motivated for those different things. So in the overall then, the way that Stoics approach uh, the, the life and suffering is through logic. Death is inevitable. Death is just one of those things that is going to happen to all of us. There's no point being afraid of it. We're all going to go through it. So if we can just accept that death is coming to us in one form or another, then we don't have to be afraid of it and we don't get crippled by this constant fear of death. We're not constantly looking to mitigate our the inevitable death that's coming. We accept it when it comes and that's it. We're not going to we can't change it. We just that's, that's just the way things are. Um, and so by removing that fear, again, through logic, through recognizing what death is, then it doesn't, it doesn't control us anymore. And any suffering that we do come across, logic would say to us, if you think about it logically, you can see how there might be some good that can come out of this. Focus on that instead of focusing on the woe was me, And you could even turn that suffering into a positive. You can use that as an opportunity to develop character. So these are sort of the two extremes then of the philosophical schools. And again, this is what Paul runs up against when he comes into Athens. And again, the reason why these two different types of schools recognize Paul was because there was something similar in his message. His message was trying to do the same thing that these philosophers were doing, which was to confront and understand and ultimately mitigate the reality of suffering that we experience in this life, which is what the Christian message was trying to do. And so when we look at the, the beginning point of the Christian message, we look at the cross. When, when Jesus came, he didn't come down as the superior philosopher that says, come and learn from me and um through your own strength, overcome your circumstances and let me be a model for you for how to uh, overcome all of your problems. He does the very opposite, in fact. He he doesn't come and teach us how to avoid the problems, but rather he comes down and enters directly into the suffering. He comes down and he experiences the worst possible human suffering any human could ever go through and goes through the midst of it. He he doesn't shy away from it. He he goes through every excruciating second of it, uh, through the garden and then through into the cross, and that's the starting point of the message. He models first of all what our response to suffering is, which is to go into the midst of it, to to enter into it, um, but then to overcome by going through it, and that's what we're going to look at next week. We're going to unpack. Uh, a lot of what the New Testament has to say about these hard times and about this suffering. But I just want to finish with this quote um, just to sort of set up where we're going to go to next week. And it's from a great scholar by the name of Edwin Judge. He says, Christ's humiliating rejection shared by no one opened the way to deliverance for all who suffer. His passion or his suffering identified him in real terms with the worst but Paul, convinced that this had destroyed the claims made for Jesus, was turned around on the Damascus Road. His own humiliation and frequent physical injuries that followed led him not only to the meaning of the cross, but to an emotional identification with Christ in his suffering. Paul urged it on his disciples at the of pers- as the touchstone of personal commitment. To Greek thinkers, humiliation was the mark of ethical inferiority. For Paul, it was the open door to salvation. This is the ultimate reason, in terms of cultural history, why we all now demand compassion. And so Christianity, at its starting point and at its core, is the recognition of suffering. And as Christians, our suffering, first and foremost, is our being aligned with Christ. It's sharing in Christ's suffering, but also recognizing that in Christ, it's through him that we overcome that suffering as well. But again, we're going to look at that next week. So please be, please join me for that. Uh, I hope this has been helpful. Uh, and I'll see you, I'll see you next week. All the best.